Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 128, and we're going to talk about those times when your friends say, Hey, you've got a van, help me move. And suddenly your home on wheels has to become a cargo van again. We'll also talk about a tale from the road involving some really scary stuff. A product review of the Kurt storage hitch and a place to visit that involves hovercrafts and eels. Yes, it's true. I will explain. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Let's dive right into it. We have built out our vans at this point, maybe, or you're thinking of building out your van, but you've made it nice. It's comfortable inside. You've got everything where you want it. And then suddenly... You need to move something big or heavy or bulky, and you want your van to move it. And uh, yeah, this is going to happen. <laughs> it's happened to me more times than I can count, where suddenly, oh, I bought this piece of furniture for my house, and I'll put it in the van. Oh, wait. <laughs> the van that is now filled with a bed and some sort of a bathroom solution and a stove and all these cabinets and yeah. Chances are this is going to happen to you, even if it's just stuff for your van. The first thing I learned was that when you use your built-out camper van as a cargo van, it beats it up more than anything else. Basically, every mile down the road is like a month's worth of usage in the back of the van. You've got stuff where you didn't intend it to be, stuff is going to do things you didn't expect, and all those scuffs and scratches and wear marks and all that stuff is going to accelerate because you're moving heavy boxes or cargo or whatever. So every time that you decide to put cargo in the back of your van, know that you're going to be adding significantly to the wear and tear. Now, there are things you can do to offset that. I mean, you can minimize it but you're not going to completely eliminate it. So, first rule is try to avoid doing this. Second rule is when it's inevitable, take steps to protect your rig. One of the most basic, simplest things you can do is design a space in your rig to do this in. Now, a lot of people build what's called a garage in the back of their van, and that's a great place for storing this stuff that you have to haul around. But people tend to fill that up with things. So when you're building your garage, consider what happens when I have to move an air conditioner for my grandmother, or what happens when my parents buy a new rug and they want me to pick it up from Home Depot, etc., etc. Anticipate this stuff. Some of the things that will make life easier for you is if you have a pass-through through the back of the van that will go all the way down the aisle, all the way to the front. If you have that space, you can put really long things in there. Also, if you do build out the back, see if you can do it in a way that's modular, where there are shelves and panels that can be removed or moved around. I know a lot of people will build exactly the right size space for exactly what they're holding, and that's great most of the time, but when you have this odd situation where you need to, say, carry some rocks for your best friend's pond that they're building, well, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. <laughs> When you're doing your build, consider, hey, what am I going to do when I'm hauling stuff that isn't part of my build? 
Now, if you're local, like if you're just doing a local move, one of the best things you can do is remove as much stuff as you can. For example, the way I have my van rigged right now, the entire bed and cabinet system is removable with a couple of screws. So if I need to haul something really big, it's actually not that big of a deal because I can just undo a couple screws and have help from a friend and pick up the entire bed and the cabinets that are under the bed all in one unit, put them aside, and then I've got tons of cargo space. For the stuff you can't move, the stuff that's permanently mounted, cover it with something. Cover it with a tarp, but make sure the tarp is fairly soft. You don't want to use anything dirty. You don't want to use anything that's rough, like those blue tarps. Those things are fairly abrasive, so you want to be careful using those. Okay, so you've got the space to put your stuff, and you've managed to cover all the stuff that you can't move. Where do you put the stuff? Well, in general, you want the most weight over the back wheels or just in front of it. If you're carrying something really heavy, you don't want it to be at the very back or to one side. It's going to affect the stability of your van. Now, most of our builds are heavy enough that we can actually add more weight and not affect the stability very much. But it's not a bad idea to consider it anyway, because you may have to do some sort of emergency maneuver that you're not considering, and that's where that little bit of off-balance weight will mess you up. Because of this, I do not recommend putting anything heavy either on your roof or hanging from your ceiling, because that's going to seriously alter your center of gravity, and that is going to make you much more likely to flip. So while it might be tempting, just consider that there's a lot more going on here than just moving a piece of cargo. Now, once you get the stuff in there, secure it, secure it, and then once more, secure it. Make sure that that stuff isn't going to move. And there's two reasons for this. One is obvious is that you don't want it to move in case of an accident. If you have to slam on the brakes, you don't want this stuff coming forward and smashing into your head. That's pretty obvious. And the other is that you don't want stuff rubbing or sliding or moving at all because that causes wear. When you're doing your build, see if you can leave the tie downs that are already in there accessible. In the NV200 I built out, I was able to leave a couple of tie downs, and those are known good spots for tying down cargo. You can get an adjustable strap and strap things down nice and secure, and you don't even have to worry about it. Bungee cords are not great for this. While they can secure things to some extent, they're not very strong, and they always allow stuff to move a bit. And one of your big enemies when you're doing this is rubbing. Just that constant vibration of your van, even if you can't really feel it, is enough to cause any two things touching each other to rub against each other. And eventually, over time, it will wear through whatever. The brand new couch, bed, slash couch that I have in my ambulance right now has a wear mark on the back of it because I hadn't considered that where the hinge touches the back of the bed when it's folded down will vibrate slightly. So I have to mitigate that now. Rubbing is your enemy. That is the thing you have to watch out for the most, and it's also the most not obvious thing to catch. So I can't emphasize enough to secure your load. Over-secure it. Make sure it's not going to move. Now, later in this podcast, I'm going to do a product review of a hitch rack. And consider that, depending on your circumstances, you may be able to use a hitch rack, which is basically a platform that attaches to your trailer hitch. And you can carry stuff outside the van. And there are a lot of advantages to that, such as that 
you don't have to do anything with the inside of the van and you can still carry some significantly large stuff. Now these things have weight limits. They're usually about 500 pounds depending on what you get and I'll talk more about all the pros and cons in the review part. But consider that and uh, if you're on the road full time it might be hard to have one of these things because where are you going to put it when you're not using it? But if you're the kind of person who has a garage yeah, you might want to invest in this just for those times when you need to move something and you don't want to mess with the inside of your van. And that leads to another solution, which I think is actually a good one. I've mentioned this before, but it is really cheap to rent trailers from U-Haul. Their vehicles are a different story, but renting a trailer is actually fairly inexpensive. And for the rare number of times when you're going to need to use your van as a cargo van, consider just installing a hitch and then getting a U-Haul. You can do one-way rentals, you can do open trailers, you can do enclosed trailers. I mean, they've got 20,000 different kinds of trailers. And that is going to be your best option for this, which is basically don't use your van as a cargo van. Use your van as a tow vehicle for a trailer that has all the cargo in it. This is the best of all possible worlds because you don't have to worry about any of the stuff I just told you. And you've got a secure place to store all that cargo while you're living in the van. So you don't have to give up your living space. So honestly, I do think that is the best option, but I'm also aware that it takes time, it takes effort, you have to organize things, and it does cost a bit of money. So the reality is, is that most of us are going to find ourselves putting cargo in the van. And, well, I hope some of these tips will help you prevent damage to your van, but really, you're best off avoiding those situations if you possibly can. Tech Talk. So I have a new listener, his name is Big Rob, and he's been pretty active on Discord, which I really appreciate. And he also is dabbling in YouTube, and I thought I'd give him a shout out because he made a YouTube video that's kind of like the videos that I like, which are real world experience using something and installing it and talking all about the challenges faced while trying to get something to fit in the right place. And I like those a lot better than these super slick polished videos where you just kind of don't trust the person because you know they probably got this for free and you know all that. But not that I am above such things. Uh, at any rate, Big Rob reviewed this incredible little stereo that costs under $100. It's called the Absoso CA70BT, BT standing for Bluetooth. This is a double DIN that is a normal height now for most stereos, and it supposed to fit right into your dashboard and it does things like let you hook up your phone and you can do Bluetooth and it has SD card slot and all this stuff. Watch the review. I will link it in the show notes. But this Tech Talk segment, I don't want to talk about this exact stereo because Big Rob has done that. I want to talk about the idea of installing a car radio in the back of your van. Now hear me out. You've got a radio in your dashboard and that's all fine and some people will use that for their sound in the back and that's fine too. But it's using your starter battery because that's how the vehicle's wired. Now you could rewire that front radio to use your leisure battery. That's an option. It's really just one wire you'd have to change. It's not that big of a deal. But with these fancy new radios that will charge your phone and have cameras... I would like you to consider an option like taking this Absoso radio and installing it in the back of the van. And then you will have a screen in the back of your van that can play videos, 
play the radio, play music from your phone, and also display two different cameras because these things have two camera inputs. So you could put a wide angle camera on the left and right of your van and then if you're in there at night and you hear something, you could just fire up this little car radio and see what's going on outside your van. Now, the thing only costs 90 bucks. You'd have to buy the cameras, you'd have to buy an antenna, and you'd have to know what you're doing with the wiring because you would basically have to put in a switch to turn the thing on since it's normally turned on by turning on the vehicle. But these are tiny little problems to overcome. I have not done this yet, but I'm thinking of doing it in my ambulance. I think it might be an easy solution to get some simple security cameras put in and have something that will do all this other stuff. Being able to quickly play media from a screen is super useful for those of us who take a lot of photos or make YouTube videos or whatever, because we can just take our SD card or USB stick, plug it into this thing, and it will show us the content immediately. That's a pretty nice thing. So, when you're building out your van, consider this idea. Put a second stereo in the back, dedicated to the back. And, geez, for a hundred bucks, you can have a security system and a media player and a radio and a way to charge your phone. And it wouldn't be that hard to install, really. So, uh, thank you, Rob, for making this video about this one unit. And, guys, think about it. This might be the way to go. Tales from the road. So I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, which is a heavily storied place. But my experience of growing up in Salem, as I've talked about before, wasn't all which this and which that, although there was plenty of that. It was also a lot about history. And one of the things that Salem was famous for, which I think most people have forgotten, is leather. <laughs> That's right. Salem used to produce an incredible amount of leather, and I remember as a kid walking to school smelling the leather factories or tanneries or whatever they're called, and around these places the streets would be greasy, and you know, it really wasn't all that pleasant. Well, in the late 70s and 80s, all those went away. There was a massive fire that burned down the last big plant, and I don't think anyone remembers that Salem was a big leather town. But it had been for well over 100 years, probably 150 years. And you can't have a big industry like that without leaving some footprints. And uh, as kids, we didn't really understand that. All we knew was that there were these weird places around the town that we weren't supposed to go to. Which, of course, made them attractive. So one day we made a trek. We were going to go to this place we had heard of that was weird. It was up a hill and it was a pond, but the pond was completely white. And we had heard kids talk about this, but we'd never seen it. So we figured, all right, today's the day. We grabbed our stuff and we headed out there. And I was, let's see, I was in eighth grade and I was taking a biology class. And I thought, well, I'm going to bring some containers, which will come into play later. Because I thought if this pond is white, what's going on there? And we can test it in our lab at school. So, okay. So we headed out there, we rode our bikes, and we came to this place with this big fence, chain link fence, that says, danger, do not pass. So, of course, again, that was like an invitation. I mean, you know, this is what life is like as a teenager, and people make movies like Stand By Me about this kind of thing, and well, that's what we were doing. Anyway, of course, this big chain link fence had a big hole in it. So we walked right through the hole and we came up to this lake or pond. It was a very small pond. I mean, you could throw a rock across it, 
but it was at the top of this hill. It was kind of like a volcano and there was no water. All there was, was this like crust. It was white and brownish yellow and just this nasty looking crust covering this pond. It was just creepy. Like you couldn't tell how deep this thing was. It could have been two feet. It could have been 50 feet. There was no way to know. And I kind of have a phobia about deep water and deep crusty water. Well, that's about the worst thing I can imagine. There was absolutely no wildlife anywhere near this. Everything around it was dead. And uh, somehow that didn't concern us because we just kept exploring. So I had my Tupperware container and I grabbed some and filled it up and brought it to school. And I'll tell you about that in a sec. But uh, a friend I was with was perhaps a little bit more adventurous than I was. And um, he walked out a little bit to see if it would support his weight. Now, folks, let me tell you, if you want to see if something's going to support your weight, maybe the best way to do that is to not, like, walk on it. Stick a stick in there or something first. But no, no, he he was braver than I. And in some places, bravery is a synonym for foolishness. And, uh, yeah, he walked out. And he didn't just stay on the edge. He walked right out into the middle of the pond. And I noticed that his shoes were sinking in a good six inches in this crust. And at this point, I'm like, you need to get back on shore right now. Because if you fall in there, I don't know what to do. I don't know that I can come in after you. This is well before cell phones. So, you know, we were half an hour away from a phone. Yeah. Now, fortunately... He was able to walk back to shore, and the disaster that could have been didn't happen. But that wasn't the end of the story. So we go back home, and uh, we don't tell anybody about this because that would be silly, but I do take the sample to school and test it, and it is a highly corrosive substance. We don't really know what it is, but it was super high on on the pH scale. It means it was very basic, but basic like lie. And we found that out later because this friend of mine that walked out there, his shoes dissolved over the course of the next week. They were canvas sneakers and they just dissolved all around where they had sunk into this material. And uh, I thought, well, that's really pretty creepy. So I went to the library. Salem Public Library is a traditional old brick uh, edifice. I mean, it's kind of a fun place to go. And I talked to the librarian and we pulled up some old maps and we found out that what this thing was was it was a dumping pit for a bleachery this was a part of the tanning process where they bleach the hide and that produces this sludge that they have to get rid of and well back in the day they would find a hole in the ground and fill it up and that's what they did and that's what we were walking on and yikes you know sometimes you should really pay attention to those signs that say do not enter Years later, we learn that the entire area was contaminated with arsenic, not only the pond, but extending all the way up to our elementary school, which was Witchcraft Heights Elementary School, which was built right as we were coming of age. It opened in 1972, and that's when I started elementary school. And the fields we used to play on were so contaminated with arsenic that they had to have trucks come in and remove them all. The baseball field, all the hills, all the places we played 
had to be removed and now there's nothing there but holes and one place they put in a road and the soccer field that was built when I was a kid that my dad was instrumental in building. Yeah, that had to be closed too, because there was so much arsenic and yeah. So, um, if you ever wonder why I am the way I am, it could be from all the arsenic I ingested as a kid. And I guess the moral of the story is, uh, discretion is the better part of valor and maybe being brave. Isn't the greatest thing in the world. Sometimes you can get away with it. But sometimes you're going to get a Darwin Award, and nobody wants that. Product review. So I have this strange situation. It's actually not all that strange. I'm going to tell you the whole story because it could apply to you. You've heard the tale of the Tiki Bago. This is a 1972 Winnebago that I drove from Oregon to Illinois, and I have parked on this piece of land I purchased on the Illinois River with the idea that it's not going to move ever again. Okay, that's all fine. But it has a toilet in it, and heck, we're going to use that toilet because that's part of the fun of having an RV or a van. But the thing is, it has a black tank, of course. How do we empty the black tank? Now, we could put in a septic system, but that's a substantial investment, and we're not sure we want to do that at this point. So we have a vehicle that we can't drive, or we can, but we really don't want to, with a black tank. What do we do with the black tank when it fills up? And, well, I have come up with a solution. Now, a lot of people have said, well, you've got all this land. Why don't you just let it go on the ground? Like, No, we're not going to do that. We're right next to a river. We're going to deal with the black tank properly. And so I bought what's traditionally known as a blue boy. Now, this is a, a big tank on wheels, and you basically empty your black tank into this tank. And then it has wheels, and you can haul it around to wherever you need to go. But that's only part of the solution, because then I've taken the waste from the black tank and put it into this other tank that I can wheel around. But that tank weighs 250, 300 pounds. It's not like I can pick it up and put it in the van, and the wheels aren't good enough that I can tow it on the road. So what do I do? Well, the solution I've come up with is a little janky, but it does seem to work. And that is I bought a Kurt 18112 50 by 30 and a half inch black aluminum hitch cargo carrier with ramp and a two inch folding shank. <laughs> yeah, Amazon's descriptions are always fun. But this, this thing is basically it's a big rack that you can attach to your trailer hitch and it gives you a space to put things outside the van. And because it has a ramp. I can push the blue boy up the ramp, put it on this thing, secure it, and then I can drive to the dump station, which is actually only about three minutes from the property. So that's easy. So this works. I mean, this is a way to do this. But I'd like to review this hitch because it does have some issues. And I I think if you're going to look at a hitch-mounted rack... You need to look into these things. So this is a very nice one. This is this is not the cheap one you can get from Harbor Freight. Kurt makes quality stuff, and this thing was about 458 bucks. It was not inexpensive, but it's very sturdy, and it has this wonderful ramp, and you could put anything up to 500 pounds on there. So even some little vehicles you might have, or if you have a ride-on mower or something like that, that could even go on there because it's big enough for that. So far, now that it's all installed and everything, it works great. But there are some drawbacks that I have to point out. First off, it does require some installation. I was a little surprised at how much you had to actually put together on this thing because there's just not that much to it. And it doesn't come with any of the tools. 
It uses Allen wrenches like Ikea does, but it doesn't come with one, and it's this really weird big size. I was able to find one in the bottom of my toolbox, but it was just annoying that they couldn't have included this 50-cent tool that would have made things go much smoother. But having built it, I would recommend you Google for a YouTube video on how to install it rather than follow the instructions. The pictures are just too small. But now that it's all put together, it feels very solid and everything works. But there's another problem. This thing's heavy. It weighs 63 pounds. And while that's not too crazy heavy, it's such that it is difficult to maneuver. So I have a problem with it that when I pick it up and try to put it in the hitch on the van, it's very difficult to get it in exactly the right spot to put the pin through. And I, I have to come up with a solution for this. I think I'm going to make a little bracket so that I, when I push it in, it will stop in exactly the right place. But I haven't done that yet. So every, it's a struggle every time. And it really is a two-person job to mount this thing. It's, it's kind of a pain. And if you're someone who can't lift 63 pounds, this is not a solution at all. You're going to have to permanently mount it and never take it off. Also, it does fold up. So the ramp folds into itself and then the entire rack will fold up against the back of your van. But when it does this, it completely obscures your license plate. And I believe that is illegal in most places. So that's a concern too. I mean, I'm very happy that it folds up because if you're driving around with this thing and it's empty, you would want it folded up because it does stick out pretty far from the back of the van. But the license plate thing is, is a problem. And I'm not even sure how to fix that problem. I mean, are you going to take your license plate off every time you use this thing and mount it to the rack? And, and then what about lighting it up? Because you have to light up your license plate. It just doesn't seem reasonable. So... For me, it's not really an issue because I don't ever plan on driving around with this thing folded up, but there may be a time when, hey, a friend has to move that piece of furniture and I will do this. So I don't know. I guess if I got pulled over for it, I'd just tell the police, oh, I didn't even think of that and, and hope they were feeling kind that day. All that said, overall, this is a very sturdy, solid unit. When you are loading it, the only thing you really need to consider is that you want most of the weight close to the hitch. It'll hold 500 pounds, but you don't want that whole 500 pounds at the back. And if you're worried about rattling, it has a pretty innovative hitch pin that will actually tighten it up to the hitch receiver so it doesn't actually rattle at all, even when it's empty. So that is pretty cool. Overall, the concept of a hitch rack, I think, is a great idea, and it's something you should look into. You don't have to spend this much money for one. This is the creme de la creme of these things. You can get them at Harbor Freight that still hold 500 pounds for about 75 bucks, but they're not going to have a ramp. They're not going to be as well built and all this stuff. So, A, think about it. This is an option you have, and it's also an option you have if you're ever in an emergency where you need to carry something that you hadn't considered. You can just go to Harbor Freight and pick one of these things up for 75 bucks and you'll be good to go. And then, well, sell it on Craigslist afterwards if you don't need it anymore. So I'll have some links in the show notes, but what we have been talking about here is the Kurt 18112 50 by 30 and a half inch black aluminum hitch cargo carrier with ramp and a two inch folding shank. A place to visit. I am going to tell you about a place to visit that you can't drive to because that's how I am. I was recently in Ketchikan, Alaska, and wanted to do something a little bit different. So we went on a hovercraft. They have a hovercraft tour. 
And um, it was kind of expensive. It was like 135 bucks, and it was only an hour and a half long, and it seemed kind of not the best way to do anything, honestly. But I'd never been on a hovercraft, and I thought, well, what the heck, we're going to do it. And we did, and it was an interesting experience. If you think of like a normal tour boat that's one level, it wasn't that dissimilar inside. But of course, a hovercraft can go on land and water. So when you board the craft, it has to inflate itself. <laughs> and there's this whole big ritual the pilot has to do to do this. And I was able to sit in the front seat next to him, so I got to see all this stuff. And it was really interesting how much work this guy had to do to get this thing going. There's levers and knobs and buttons, and he had to inflate the skirt just right at a certain speed while maintaining a certain altitude, because, well, I mean, it's not really a flying vehicle, but it kind of is. And eventually we got going, and it was fun. We were sailing across the sound and not going as fast as it could go because the Coast Guard has restrictions, but... At one point, he, he turned the controls, and we were going sideways, and the thing had no problem at all with that. And then came the really fun part where we just drove right up onto a beach. We didn't even slow down. We just went right up onto the beach and drove around a bit and then stopped, and we were able to get out and, well, feed eagles because that's a thing you do in Juneau. There were tons of bald eagles everywhere, and the guy had brought some fish, and he's throwing the fish in the air, and the eagles are catching them, and that's a whole other thing. Honestly, if you want to see wildlife, the hovercraft tour isn't really the cheapest or easiest way to do it. But if you want to see wildlife and be on a hovercraft, well, heck, give it a shot. Now, I know the burning question on everyone's mind is, were there eels on the hovercraft? Because I know everyone is a Monty Python fan. And the answer is yes, because I brought a can of eels with me that I got on Amazon just for this purpose. <laughs> because you can't go on a hovercraft and not bring eels. You just can't. So I'm happy to report that there were eels on this hovercraft ride. So I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to check this out. It was a lot of fun. The pilot was great. The guide was great. We saw all kinds of cool stuff. And it was really nice to be able to go to a semi-remote beach away from everything and take a little walk in the woods and see the eagles up close. I mean, it was just nice to have a few moments of being in quote-unquote real Alaska, even if we did get there by hovercraft. Resource Recommendation Hey, I know the world of mapping is pretty much settled. I mean, you found your favorite mapping program and you're going to use it, whether it be Waze or Google Maps or Apple Maps, which if you have an iPhone and haven't given it a try in the last couple of years, Apple Maps is really, really good right now. And if you have CarPlay, it's what I use and I recommend. But I want to talk about learning about traffic patterns with maps. Now, if you are visiting a city like Atlanta or Boston or Chicago or New York or LA or San Francisco or more and more and more of these large cities, the amount of traffic there can really affect what you're going to do and what your experience is going to be like. Fortunately, Google Maps, the online version and the web browser version, has a feature where you can type in what time you want to leave from or what time you want to arrive, and you can see the difference in the traffic patterns. And these can be substantial. I know in Chicago, during rush hour, a 10-mile drive can take 90 minutes. But if it's not rush hour, it'll take 10 minutes. And that is a huge difference. And if you are looking at visiting a place and you want to explore that and you have some timed things you're concerned about, 
try Google Maps timed options. It really gives you a great idea for what to expect. And you don't find yourself, say, late for dropping somebody off at the airport because you didn't anticipate that the 8 o'clock traffic would be three times as bad as the 6 o'clock traffic. So that's it, just maps.google.com. Everybody knows Google Maps but you may not know about the timed options. And the way you access them is simply to type in where you wanna go, press the directions button, and then below that you will see depart at, leave at, arrive at, all that kind of stuff, and you pick your date and your time. Date matters too, because traffic's different on Sunday than it is on Monday. And you will have a much better idea of what you're in for, and you won't miss important appointments. Well, folks, that wraps up episode 128. Thank you very much for listening. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If for any reason you need to get a hold of me, you can always send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the wise words of Friedrich August von Hayek, who said, We shall not grow wiser before we learn that much we have done was very foolish. <laughs>